This is the full interview from a segment from the Overdrive radio and podcast program. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au. As we mentioned in the news, the Grattan Institute has just released a report titled Gridlock, Removing Barriers to Policy Reform. It was very critical of systemic problems in government including the reduction of expertise and independence of the public service, too many ministerial advisers closely tied to political parties, a lack of control of political donations, campaign finance, lobbying and post-politic careers, and an absence also of a federal anti-corruption commission with teeth. Is there a strong basis for their comments and what should we do about it? Ken Dobinson was a senior executive in what was then the Department of Main Roads in New South Wales. Good day, Ken. Hello, David. How much time or of your time when you worked in government was spent dealing with politics rather than technology? In the latter, very, very latter years in the, uh, as a member of the board, uh, I, I would say probably 50% was dealing with political issues at the time, but, but that was the way forward, no objection to that. And uh, the other 50%, uh, or of the other 50%, probably uh, 30% was spent on human resources dealing with staff problems. So technology was a very low level at that stage. But, of course, in previous years, 10 years earlier, it was 90% technology. It got worse. As you rise up the scale, the less you find you can concentrate on on technology and introducing new concepts and things, and you find you get more involved with the political situations because you have to uh, persuade and give the Minister of the Day the ammunition to push through some new policy uh, that you want, want applied. And so you're applying all the effort to that. And that is, of course, as the Grattan report is the correct process because it's the, the departmental uh, heads that, that have the knowledge, not these people that would sit in the, uh, in the middle role as ministerial advisors. Uh, yeah, yes. Yeah, uh, and, uh, uh, and the best experience of that, I told one minister, a very, very competent minister at one stage, the best thing he could do is to get rid of his ministerial advisors and start to listen to his, his departmental heads. And for the most part, he did. Yeah, we'll come to that because it is a case that while the public service is there to implement government policy, it's also very critically there to try and give, to well, not try, but to give advice on the sensibility of the thoughts that come into politicians' minds. Exactly. And you've got to get the... The politician might have a, a, a very, very clever idea presented to him but till, until it's tested by the people who understand the full impact of it he's, he, it's a very very dangerous move to start and move and adopt the new policy you might find the new policy or the new project doesn't stack up and once the government's committed to it of course it's got to follow through and that's mm. that's usually in many cases a disaster you mean that if it doesn't pass the pub test, it may, it, it or if it does pass the pub test, it may be still uh, inappropriate. Absolutely, and also <laughs> worse still, may cost you a hell of a lot more than you think you're spending as as a minister of state. Hmm. Did you have to couch? 
positive projects and changes in political terms to get them accepted? Uh, in some cases, in, in most cases, yes. You had to persuade the uh, government of the day that the positive outcomes for it for the community were going to be greater than the losses. But they're always losses. They're always, you know, anti-things. Anti but you could usually get them across in, in my day if you had a convincing argument. Uh, the hardest things to, to deal with were when the government had virtually made up its mind and you knew it was going to be an ultimate disaster, either policy-wise or financial-wise, and then to talk them out of it. That was probably a harder job. Does that emphasise the point of how important it is to have technical advice before they make public statements? Absolutely. Many, many people in more recent years, which I consider have been, a, like the Grattan Report says, has been a major, major decline in the performance of government with new policies. And, you know, unless you make... Well, the common word today is, particularly with projects... Where's the business case? If you haven't got a business case that shows it's going to work, look forward to huge over-expenditures. And we've had some very, very good examples in transport in recent, in recent years in this area, you know, going back some years with, uh, you know, the Cross City Tunnel was a classic that went over that because they had the wrong answer. And, uh, and, and probably in recent times, we're still building, we built the tram in the city that ran over. We're building, still building the West Connex that looks like it's skyrocketing in cost. And, you know, that's, if you don't do your business case first and know what your, the benefits are going to be compared to the costs and have real costs by, prepared by people who are doing this sort of thing every day, you can look forward to things not going quite right in government or the other end a complete disaster. Big projects are often justified on a one-off perception of what they will do. How often was there a case where there was unintended consequences? Oh, well, I think in all cases where you get overruns, and there's a lot of talk about overruns in costs, uh, they're, they're perfect examples of this. If the, if the homework had been done in advance, either the uh, uh, project would have been cut down, possibly in some cases not done, or at least the government would be well aware of what it could expect in the future and not float costs and then have to explain time and time again while it was over, while it was overrunning. In managing technical people, engineers and uh, people who were involved, and I think you particularly were there when the electronic revolution in traffic signal design and other cases was really starting to flow, was there occasionally discouragement at the forces of politics over the forces of productive improvement? Quite often. And that's when the two parties need to come together. I mean, the... Uh, one minister said to me uh, many years ago when I start to explain the technology to him, he just said to me, that's your problem and make sure you get it bloody right. Leave the politics to me. And when they get, in, the two get into conflict, we sit down and thrash it out. That's the way to get success on both sides of those, that picture, both from the bureaucracy who's giving the advice and the minister who's delivering the project.
So it's a question of timely and effective interaction. Like like the poor, politicians will always be with us. Were there any there, and I think you've hinted at that at least on several occasions, there were at least some that strived for a balance? Not as many as I would have liked to have seen. In, in many cases, politics, in the politician's mind, was the primary consideration, uh, may I say it, not necessarily the community. How much of an issue was it that they were doing short-term how to get re-elected versus long-term community benefit? No, David, I I didn't see a lot of that uh, because I didn't see a lot of initiatives coming from the parliament. Most initiatives, as far as I can recall in my day, I'm not talking about today, the initiatives came from the bureaucracy or from some party outside who was usually flogging uh, modern technology. The best example of that, of course, was the Cross Harbour Tunnel. That was an external party that saw this opportunity with this new technology to put a proposal forward and with a financial institution at the time who saw a marvellous way of raising the money and make it a payable option and, and, you know, without those two coming to the government and then checking out and dotting the I's and tossing the crease by the, within the bureaucracy, that project would not have gone ahead. You can't condemn private industry from wanting to make a profit, but is it government's role to make sure that we're considering broader community benefits? If, and, and I think some of the examples you gave, they ultimately didn't make a profit, but just because someone proposes it and they can benefit out of it, how much more important is it to consider the broader implications? It's vital to consider the full ambit of what your proposal is. It's not just a matter of building a project and saying, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. And, you know, from the politician's point of view, he can boast, you know, and cut the ribbons and get good credit for it. You have to make sure that that project is going to deliver to the community what everybody would would expect from it and it doesn't always do that that's the problem unless you get it thoroughly checked out and in today's terms not narrowly but broadly looking at all the aspects of it and and we tend to say today it has to be sustainable well it has to be economic or you don't build the damn thing but it also has to be environmentally acceptable and socially acceptable or you haven't got a successful project. In a way, that's being economically right, but with a broader concept of externality costs, that if you build bad roads, you end up with a lot more people in hospital, for example. Yeah, absolutely. That's That's a vital element. And in many cases, of course, when you're dealing with environmental aspects and social impacts, you can't actually put a cost on them. But you can also always get a relative figure that tells you whether one's better than the other or one's going to be negative or one's going to be positive. It mightn't be by dollar signs, but there are other aspects you can look at that will give you an indication in those areas. Someone once said uh, modelling is not about predicting the future, but by comparing different scenarios. Do you think that's an important part of computer modelling and and other aspects of an analysing projects? Of course it is. That's and that's part that's part of your 
your modelling process, but you've always got to look even beyond your modelling because in some instances it's not possible even today to adequately model certain elements that might be might be occurring. You know, it might be a, a you know a side impact of a project you are looking at that might have a detrimental effect on the employability of the uh, workforce you've got at the day. And it's very hard to put that into your model, in ter- and particularly in terms of a dollar sign, which is the ultimate criteria. Quite often we find that a decision has been made and the modelling's still going on. It makes you doubt how much that modelling has been important in the decision versus how much it's now just going to be used to justify a preconceived idea. Yeah, unfortunately today I think you see a bit too much of that where you you read a a full report on some project, whether it's a you know building a road or or a bridge or that or or some uh, community benefit, and you see the report and you go through it and you read it and you say, well that was written to justify the decision that had already been made, and that's not healthy because the party that's already made the decision probably hasn't done that the project in the first place. It's often said that they get you to model three alternatives, two are almost the same, and one of them is so silly no one will accept it, and then spend a squillion dollars on modelling. I'm not trying to be unfair to modellers. I think there's some very sincere people there, but I'm saying that the government process is often to determine a pre to to get a decision on a predetermined idea anyway. Yes, that's, that, and that is very, very unfortunate because uh, in some of those cases you find the government then has, while the project's going on and for many years onwards, having to justify why it's not delivering what it said or it's costing more or it's having un- unpredicted consequences which could have all been predicted. They've covered that by employing more PR people. So <laughs> it's not a case of uh, employing people, and that was one of the criticisms of the Grattan report, that we're downgrading the skills within government, except for PR and marketing, to tell people why it wasn't their fault or it was someone else's fault. That's exactly right, and the Grattan report is is absolutely correct in that and you know when i add another element is uh, employing more and more it experts to make sure you can model what they're doing to give them the answers they want and de uh, professionalizing the organization for the people who would you desperately need in those roles to deliver what you're trying to deliver to the community and, and you can see this even in, in recent advertisements where, you know, it's, it's hard to define, you know, when they're employing a traffic safety officer, uh, the words for the ad rarely would, can, would have the words in them, traffic safety pers- person. Expertise. Yes. Quite often then that we're trying to uh, luxuriate in the technology rather than have on-the-ground experience. You found that, uh, particularly that on-the-ground experience, was critical when you were part of the development of what became a world-renowned traffic coordination system. And, of course, when you're getting into those 
leadership areas, not only do you need the, the uh, experts in the various fields, you need super experts if you're going to branch into, you know, worldwide uh, best technology. And you also need to cap the entire world knowledge in that subject before you start to move seriously and invest money in it. And that's not happening today. It's just just not there. And, and I always had a theory in uh, government that when you're appointing a, a, a new director or what they call them secretaries today or this sort of thing, uh, the, the best per- you needed a person who was there to do their job, never matter what happened. And I, w- I used to use the words, you needed to, pop, uh, to employ someone who would do their job, whatever, and didn't care if you, they got, the government got rid of him tomorrow. There was always party politics, but there was also departmental politics, wasn't there? Fights between departments of roads and railways. Yeah. Was that a significant barrier in your day? It wasn't so bad. People tended to be reasonably competent in their, uh, their various roles in heading up various government bodies. I see it opposite, and I think the Grattan report's absolutely right. It seems to be that uh, the uh, the choices for the head leaders of departments is, is first considered on the basis of their political persuasions, uh, rather than their competence in the in the area in which they're working, and and that's not healthy at all. You need the best people heading government departments, or if you can't do that don't have the government department at all, just hand it all over to a private sector organisation who will deliver. Yeah, but even they will have to think about if they deliver what's wanted versus what uh, is really needed. Uh, there, there can be a distinction at all levels in that. Oh, of course there is, yes. And, and, that's, yeah. and that's the challenge for government, which is a, you know, almost an impossible challenge, is how do you get the best person to give you the best advice for what you're trying to do? And that's, that's always going to be a challenge that possibly you can't solve at 100% anyway. No, but you are systemically uh, arranging things so that it's moving in the right direction, I would think. You were a little disappointed, though, in the Grattan report. Did it not go far enough? Well, I, I, I was... I was hopeful that it would come up with some very, very powerful suggestions as to how we could move back where we were getting the best answers for the community, and it didn't, it didn't quite get there. Possibly for a very good reason, it was not possible to, possible to uh, come up with those answers. No, but we need to, and perhaps the Grattan Institute is talking about a series of reports uh, leading up to the federal election, that perhaps we take this as a development and continue on from there. Uh, we've got to embrace this. Is that the message that you get out of this? I think we do. We need to we need to push on, and, and uh, the Grattan probably is the only organisation that can probably do it that I can think of today. Yes, they need to push on and in, and 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 possibly involve the community in some way to come up with some suggestions as to how we might uh, change this. Uh, I don't know what they are. They don't stand out uh, very well. And the, possibly the, uh, the old theory still applies. If an organisation is not performing and you can't get it to perform, well, 
start again. Get rid of the organisation and start again. Uh, that's the that's what happens in private enterprise because you know I always say the saviour of private enterprise is that it can go bankrupt. Unfortunately, organisations in government that are not operating effectively don't go bankrupt. <laughs> yeah, one one of the things of modelling is that we often employ modellers who are genuine, many many are genuinely sincere and work extremely hard, uh, but it it. It's to do within a closed environment, and at the end they say the answer's 42, which often agrees with what the government wanted. Uh, David Hensher, Professor David Hensher, has a program. It gives you a bit of an idea of what might happen after about 40 minutes. And so instead of going to the public and saying, what do you want? Well, I'll have a railway line or I'll have this. You go to the public and say, what do you think? And let me tell you what the impacts of those are, good and bad. Is that back to the point you were making at the beginning of a need for good and bad analysis of impacts? Yes, it is. And, and I don't quite know how we get there, though, David. It's, it's something that, uh, you know, we have to think a lot harder about because it's very hard to correct something after it's got off the rails. Uh, I didn't mean a train, no. but uh, <laughs> I, meant a, I meant a policy. Yep. And it's also hard, very hard to sell something when the community per- perceives that it's not in their best interests. And usually something that's sponsored by government and the, go- and the community doesn't entirely trust, the, trust government. Uh, that, that's the big problem. I mean, the, uh, the concept of in, in roads, of course, and... We go back many, many years of introducing a, a, a distance-based charging system for vehicles on the road rather than a, a petrol tax has been around for many, many years and is a positive move for everybody's a winner. And if you add to that uh, David Henshaw's concept of congestion pricing, which you can just build into the same package, you've got possibly one of the best possible uh, money-raising or taxing systems that you could get and it has you know, so many spin-offs. Even the governments would would benefit because the federal government would, could look after uh, petrol tax and do what they like with it, and the states would look after the roads, which they do now, and how you pay for them. But we, it, the governments have never been able, not only here but almost around the world, to get this concept across. And I suspect it's simply because the various communities at large don't trust the government. They think they'll they'll be have a double tax. You know, they'll still have the fuel tax, and the, they'll they'll have this new tax imposed on them for driving on the roads. So there, there's a good example of where we where do we go from there? And you know, to some extent, I think the community's probably right anyway. We'd end up with a double tax. The issue is that it it is a better tax that can encourage better. Uh, adaption of what we do that suits the community and is beneficial to the community, but people see that the government will only see it as raising money. Exactly. Whereas we should be seeing it as providing a better community, even if the government doesn't get as much money up front, but hopefully it might reduce hospital bills or anything, you know, pollution or so on, that it saves externality costs. That's right. And the community don't... They can probably see those benefits. In fact, I think in many cases they do. 
but they don't see why they should have to pay twice for it. They can see the benefits, but they doubt the, the way the politicians will use it. Yes, exactly. The Grattan report triggers even more conversation, but they do talk about things such as being transparent and being accountable and ways to do that. Let's hope that we can try and find out more specific what does it look like when it's working types of approaches to it. Ken, I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Okay, thanks, David. And that was Ken Dobinson, formerly an executive for a road department in New South Wales. Overdrive is a radio and podcast program featuring road tests, interviews and features on motoring and transport. More information is available at drivenmedia.com.au and podcasts on Spotify or iTunes.